You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles there, please go ahead and open them to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, so a familiar text. And as you turn there, I'd like to read to you from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, this is where Jesus is describing what it looks like to be a disciple. And this is what he says. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here's what Jesus is not saying here, okay? He's not saying that we must hate our families. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he is saying. He's saying that if we want to be his disciples, we must love him first and most. We must love him first and most. We must love him more than family. We must love him more than our earthly lives. And we must love him more than our earthly comforts. And this text is commonly known as the cost of discipleship. Because that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's telling us, if we want to be his disciple, there will be a cost. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, it might cost you your family harmony. Because your family might turn against you. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, it might cost you your life. There are Christians that will be killed today because they follow Christ. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then guaranteed it will cost you your comfort to some degree because God has promised us that we will suffer. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it, it will come at a cost. But listen, listen, listen. There's another side to this as well. Because discipleship just isn't all cost. There's also gain. There is a gain. There is a tremendous gain. In fact, a gain that is bigger and greater than all costs. And here's why. Because the gain is Jesus Christ himself. Amen? Amen. Jesus Christ himself is the gain. And a disciple that sees this will be a disciple that does not look at the Christian life primarily as loss, but primarily as gain because the gain is Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, being a disciple has everything, everything to do with the heart. It has everything to do with what or who we truly love the most. Therefore, a disciple is someone who sets their heart on Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but increasingly. A disciple is someone who loves Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, but increasingly. And therefore, therefore, a disciple, a disciple who is setting their heart on Jesus Christ and loving Jesus Christ will be a disciple who seeks to obey Jesus Christ which ultimately means this, that a disciple is someone who seeks to live out the purpose for which they were created. And what is that purpose? Well, let's have a look at Isaiah chapter 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, notice this, 
whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is why we exist. We exist for the glory of God. This is your purpose. This is my purpose. The glory of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, in, in whatever you do, even if it's eating or, or drinking, whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And this is what a disciple seeks to do. This is what a disciple of Christ strives after most to live for the glory of God. Just like a, a fish lives to swim and a bird lives to fly and our new dog Oliver lives to chase squirrels. I'm telling you, here he is right now. Have a look at him. So this is our new dog Oliver. I have never seen a dog in my life so focused on squirrels. It's like he sees a squirrel. This is like his passion. This is what he lives for. He's all about this. Likewise, a disciple of Jesus Christ must have a passion to live for the glory of God. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now notice this. But these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So if we want to be disciples who are living for the glory of God, we must be disciples who are seeking to enjoy God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Here's what Tim Keller said. He said, glorifying God does not mean obeying him simply because you have to. It means to obey him because you want to, because you are attracted to him, because you delight in him. In other words, God is glorified as we love him and then keep his commandments, listen, because we want to, because we love him. If a parent asks their child to clean their room and the child says, no, that's not honoring to the parent, right? Is that honoring? That's not honoring. If the child says, fine, and they slam the door, and they're picking up their clothes, they're throwing it in the drawer, slamming the... That's not honoring to the parent either, is it? But if the child cleans their room because they want to, because they love the parent, that's honoring. That's honoring to the parent. And when we do what Jesus Christ has commanded us to do because we want to, because we love him, because we want to glorify him, then he is honored. And so what has Jesus Christ commanded us to do? What are the things that we should be doing day in, day out because we want to, because we love him and want to glorify him? But when a lawyer asked Jesus what the most important thing was, the most important commandment, this is what he said. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. This is the main thing, to love God most and to love God first. This is what we need to be about, loving God. He said, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a lot of love. 
So God is glorified then when we love him first, when we love him most, and then when we seek to love others because we want to, because we love him and we want to glorify him. Now question, what is the absolute, hands down, for sure, best way that we can love other people? What is the best, hands down, for sure, best way we can love other people? Well, here it is, here it is. By pointing them to Jesus Christ. That's the best way we can love people. And listen, if we do this, there will be a cost. And we will suffer. But the gain, the gain, the gain will far outweigh every cost. And in the book of Hebrews, God is calling his people to embrace the cost of the Christian life by believing that the gain will far outweigh every cost. And the author in Hebrews chapter 11 uses an analogy to illustrate what the Christian life looks like. And he uses the analogy of a race. But it's not like a race from here to the back of the worship center. It's an agonizing marathon. He equates the Christian life to an agonizing marathon. He writes this. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, in other words, let us passionately live for that which matters most by doing this, by running the race of love and obedience by faith for the glory of God. By running the race of love and obedience by faith for the glory of God. And why is it by faith? Why must it be by faith? Well, here's why. Because real faith always produces real love and real obedience. Real faith always, always, always produces real love and real obedience. So what is real faith then? Well, real faith is this. It's taking God at his word. It is believing who he is and believing what he has done and believing what he has promised. And real faith always produces real love and real obedience. So if we want to be a people who are truly living for that which matters most, we must do this. We must run the race of love and obedience by faith for the glory of God. And that leads us right into our first of two points today. The first one's a little bit longer. second one is a little bit shorter. Here's the first one. To run the race of obedience, to run the race of love by faith for the glory of God, I must do this. You can jot this down. I must repent of disordered love and believe the gospel. I must repent of disordered love and believe the gospel. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and we'll, we'll stop right there. So who are these witnesses? Well, these witnesses are the saints that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11 who did amazing things by faith. By faith. They are the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 who have already now finished the race. They finished the race. And how are they witnesses exactly? Are they witnesses because they're witnessing us? Is it, are they kind of like in the stands and we're up on the jumbotron and they're, they're watching us? 
Well, the word witness here does not likely mean that they're watching us, but rather they are witnessing to us. They are testifying to us. They are telling us something with their lives. What are they saying? This is what they're saying, that by faith, they finish the race, and so can we. By faith, they finished the race, and so can we. And they didn't finish the race because they were remarkable people. They finished the race because our remarkable God was with them and carried them along. And now they have finished the race and they are now enjoying the reward, the reward of Jesus Christ himself. Right now, because they finished the race, they are experiencing more joy and more pleasure than we can possibly comprehend. We don't have a category for this yet, but one day we will, amen? One day we will, but right now, It's by faith. Now have a look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now notice this, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us lay aside every weight. What is a weight? Well, a weight here is referring to anything that is not helping us run the race. A weight is is anything that is not helping us run the race. Now, for example, if a runner is running in the Olympics and they're all lined up and they're ready to go and and they're they're poised and they're focused and the gun goes off and now everyone is running. They're running as fast as they can. And then there's one runner, and I'll do in slow motion here, there's one runner and and he's kind of pulling away from everybody else. And so he slowly kind of puts his hand back into his pocket, pulls out his cell phone. He's like texting his friend, I'm winning, I'm winning. And then he like takes a picture, takes another picture. She's like flipping over, posting it on Instagram. Is this going to help him go faster? It's not going to help, is it? Is it wrong for a runner to own a cell phone? It's not wrong. It's not wrong. But it's not going to help him win. It's not going to help him go faster. And all of us have things like that in our lives. All of us have weights. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but they're not helpful because they're not helping us to run the race. John Piper says this about weights. The race of the Christian life is not run well by asking, what's wrong with this or that? But by asking, will this thing stand in the way of greater love, greater purity, greater courage, greater humility, greater patience, and greater self-control? There's our race. And notice this, don't ask, is it a sin? But rather, does it help me run? And as we consider in our lives, whether I should do this or whether I should do that, this is a super helpful thing to think about. Will this help me run? Is this going to help me go faster? Or is this going to slow me down? Because if it's going to slow me down, it's a weight, and I need to lay it aside. Now, seeing as we're talking about cell phones, is it wrong to own a phone? It's not wrong. Can a phone be a a good gift? It can. Can a phone be a weight? For sure. For sure. In what way is your phone a weight? 
In what way is your phone not helping you run? But weights aren't the only thing we need to lay aside. We must also lay aside sin. Have a look again at verse 1. Let us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And because sin, it just clings so closely. We must lay it aside because sin entangles, making running either really, really hard or virtually impossible. Now think of it. If there is a runner at the start line, and he's poised to start, but he is totally tied up in ropes, the gun goes off, what happens? He falls on his face. Likewise, in the Christian life, if we are trying to run, we're trying to move forward, and we are tangled all up in the cords of sin, we will not be able to run. And all of us, all of us here today, have sin that entangles us to some degree or another. And if we want to run the race of love and obedience by faith for the glory of Jesus Christ, then we must do this. We must repent of what Augustine called disordered love. Disordered love. And what is disordered love? Well, disordered love is when we are loving something else more than God. When there's a, a top 10 uh, list in our affections and something that might be at, should be at like five or eight has instead made it all the way up to number one. That is disordered love. And, and the things that we tend to love more than God are usually not bad things. Sometimes they are, but usually not. Usually not bad things. They are fantastic things. They are good things. But here's what we do. We make them into ultimate things. We make them into ultimate things, and our love becomes disordered. Now, in the same way that a marriage cannot move forward if there's disordered love, if there is unrepentant adultery happening in a marriage, that marriage cannot move forward. Likewise, likewise, if there is unrepentant spiritual adultery in our lives where we are loving other things more than God, we cannot move forward in our race. And listen, when it comes to spiritual adultery, we all do this to some degree. And so we all, I, need to come to my senses we need to come to our senses. And we need to see that God and his glory and intimacy with him is infinitely better than anything else. It is. God and his glory and intimacy with him is infinitely better than anything else. And we need to see this as well. That our disordered love is grieving God. That God is jealous for our affections. We are grieving the one who loves us the most. We are grieving the one who died for us on a cross and brought us to himself. We are grieving the one who is seated on the highest throne, who we will worship forever. We're grieving him by choosing other things over him by loving other things more than him, by saying in our hearts that other things are greater than him and better than him and more satisfying than him. 
It's spiritual adultery. It is disordered love. Now ask yourself, do I think of my sin like that? Because that's what it is. And when we begin to see our sin rightly, when we begin to see our sin like God sees it, as disordered love, then here's what happens. Our sin begins to look to us like death. And we are grieved by our sin. And we, we turn from our sin to God in confession and in brokenness and in repentance. Here's what J.I. Packer said about repentance. Love this quote so much. So powerful. Listen to what he said. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Let me say that again. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. So true. So true. And God is calling us this morning to repent. God is calling us this morning to repent of disordered love in the light of who he is. To lay aside every weight and sin so that we can run the race of love and obedience by faith for the glory of Jesus Christ. So where is there disordered love in our lives? And then how do we repent of it? Because oftentimes, here's what we do. We think about sin as sin is uh, chasing after bad things. And that's true. Sin is chasing after bad things. But probably more often, sin for us is making good things into ultimate things. And one of the reasons why we do this, one of the reasons why our love becomes uh, disordered is that as human beings, we want to have meaning in our lives. We want to have purpose in our lives. We want to be valued. And that's not wrong. It's just a matter of where am I seeking meaning and purpose and value in my life? Because our true meaning and our true purpose is to glorify God by loving him and worshiping him and enjoying him and delighting in him and being satisfied in him and then pointing other people to him. That's our meaning and our purpose. And our true value, our true value comes from God because he has set his perfect, steadfast love upon us. But when we believe the lie that's everywhere, that says that meaning and purpose and value are found in other things, then our love becomes disordered. We exchange God for something else. And we begin to build our whole identity around something that we believe will give us meaning and purpose and value in our lives. But really, here's what it will do. It will destroy us. Let me ask you, is there something in your life that if, if it were to be removed, if God were to take that thing away, it would literally strip you 
of all meaning and purpose and value in your life? Is there anything that your your identity has become so connected to that if God were to remove that thing, it would literally strip your life of all sense of meaning and purpose and value? Or is is there something that you want because you're thinking, if I could just get that thing, then I'll have meaning and purpose and value in my life. You don't have it yet, but you're pursuing it. What is that thing for you? Well, let's look at a couple examples of these. Here's the first one. This is a big one, especially for men. Women too, but especially for men. Uh, Your job. Your job. Why is it? Why is it that when men meet, what's one of the first questions we ask each other? How's your work? Yeah, yeah, how's your work? What do you do? What do you do, right? Why is that? Why do we... it's, It's because so often... We root our identity in our job. Now consider it, consider it. Your job, your career, your success at work, respect and admiration that you receive in the workplace. Ask yourself, is this where you find meaning and value and purpose in your life? Do you you sort of clothe yourself in your job and seek some kind of security in that? Or how about this, Uh, wealth and possessions, bank account, portfolio, house, car, furniture, gadgets, clothing. Is this where you find meaning and value and purpose in your life? Do you you sort of clothe yourself with with your possessions and your wealth and find a degree of security in that? Or how about this, family, family your role as a husband or a wife, your role as a mother or a father. Is this where you find meaning and value and purpose in your life? Do you kind of clothe yourself with with your particular role in your family and seek some security there? Because family is a good thing, isn't it? Family is such a good thing, which is why we're so tempted to make it an ultimate thing. Or how about this last one? Uh, The approval of others. The praise of others. Acceptance. Popularity. Being known. Getting the attention. Getting the pat on the back. Is this where you find meaning and value and purpose in your life? Do you sort of clothe yourself with compliments? Clothe yourself with people who like you and seek to find security there? Because if so, for any of these things, then love has become disordered. And it is grieving God because we've exchanged him for something else. And not only that, we are also hurting ourselves and we're hurting the people around us. And here's how, here's how. If your job is your God, then you will be a workaholic You will neglect your family, your identity will be your job, your love will be disordered, and Jesus Christ will not be first in your heart. If if money and possessions is your God, you you will never have enough. You will live to store up money and possessions. You will never, ever be satisfied. Your things will be your identity, your love will be disordered, and Jesus Christ will not be first in your heart. If your family is your God, 
then your expectations of your family will be so high that no one will ever be able to meet them. And and you'll just feel like your family is just always disappointing you. And your identity will be your family. And your love will be disordered. And Jesus Christ will not be first in your heart. And if man and his approval is your God, you will live to be liked. You will be a people pleaser. Your identity will be whatever people tell you you are. You will always think people are against you. Your love will be disordered and Jesus Christ will not be first in your heart. And when I hear these examples, I see there is disordered love in my life. There is disordered love in my heart. And over the last two weeks, I've seen it, I think, clearer than I ever have before. There's disordered love in me. How about you? Because when we're not taking God at his word, there will be idolatry in the camp. There's idolatry in the camp. And so what are we going to do about it? How do we purge ourselves of this? Do we, do we just quit our job if we've made our job an idol? Do we just get rid of all our money and possessions if we've made that an idol? Do we abandon our family if we've made family an idol? Do we just like not ever talk to anyone because we make people into idols? Well, that's not going to work, is it? Because if we push all those things aside, we'll just seek our value and our meaning and our purpose in something else. We'll just switch one idol out for another. No, there has to be something deeper. There has to be real heart change. In other words, we need to love God first and most and other things less. We need to love God first and most and other things less less because then job can be just job it can be a good thing instead of an ultimate thing and money and possessions can be a good thing a good gift from God instead of an ultimate thing and family can be a good thing instead of an ultimate thing and relationships can be a good thing instead of an ultimate thing if we love God first and most but how do we how do we do that how do we love God more? It's kind of like the, the couple that shows up for marriage counseling and they sit down with the counselor and they say, our marriage has been really bad for decades. And, and they pour out their heart to the counselor and the counselor takes all, all the notes and, and at the end the counselor says, well, I think I got the whole thing figured out. I think it's really clear actually, you know, I think we could get this whole thing wrapped up in like two or three minutes. So, so here's the problem. The problem is that you're not loving each other enough. And they're like, yeah, that's it. We are loving each other enough. And he's like, okay, great. So here's the answer. Here's the answer. This is going to be a glory story. Here's the answer. You just have to go and love each other more. Not helpful. It's true, but it's not helpful. It might be the right path, but where's the power going to come from? The love's not there. Where's the love going to come from? Well, praise the Lord that in our case, we have a direct path to growing in love for God. We have a direct route in growing in love for God. We have a super highway in front of us in growing in love for God. And here it is. It's the gospel. 
It's the gospel. Because in the gospel, we find that God has given us access to the only thing that can ever satisfy our hearts, himself. In the gospel, we find that God has given us access to the greatest treasure in the universe, himself. In the gospel, we discover that God has given us value because he has set his perfect love upon us. In the gospel, we find that God has given us meaning and purpose. It's this, to glorify him. And in the gospel, we discover that God has given us an identity. Do you know who you are? If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, do you know who you are? Let me tell you who you are. You are a new creation, redeemed from a life of slavery to sin. You are justified, made perfect in the sight of God, sins forgiven and clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ, reconciled to God, brought into friendship with God adopted as God's very own child, made heavenly royalty and a co-heir of all things with Jesus Christ, with, with Jesus Christ himself as your eternal inheritance and everlasting joy and treasure. That's who you are in Jesus Christ. You are not your job. You are not your stuff. You are not your family. You are not who other people say you are. You are who God says you are, period, and only because of the gospel, only because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And believing this, I mean, really believing the gospel, believing that God has given us himself to treasure, that's awesome. Believing that God has already given us meaning and purpose and value and identity, really believing this grows our love for God so that we love him first and most. Our answer is believing the gospel. Therefore, to run the race of love and obedience by faith, by faith for the glory of God, I must repent of disordered love and believe the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Which leads us to our second point, which is this. To run the race of love and obedience by faith for the glory of God, I must do this. You could jot this down. I must look to the joy set before me in Jesus Christ. I must look to the joy set before me in Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice these two main points in this text. It's this. Running and looking. Running and looking. We need to run. We need to look. We need to run the race of love and obedience by faith for the glory of God by looking to the joy that is set before us in Jesus Christ. And so we'll begin with this. 
What does it mean to run the race of love and obedience by faith, by faith? Well, here's one thing that it means. It means to understand that love ultimately does not come from us. Love does not come from us. Love comes from God, and God produces love in us as we look to Jesus Christ and believe who he is and believe what he's done and believe what he has promised us because love is entirely a fruit of the Spirit. It is not a fruit of us. If you have a giant apple tree in your backyard and a huge storm comes and a gust of wind just snaps a limb off and it lands on the ground, that limb is not going to produce any fruit. It can't. It's impossible. It's not connected to the tree. Likewise, likewise, we cannot bear fruit apart from God doing it in us. And the Holy Spirit bears the fruit of love in us as we look to Jesus. Therefore, our greatest need, yours and mine, is that we look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus And as we look to Jesus, here's what we'll see, that he is both our example and our reward. He is both our example and our reward. Now look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now look at this. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How did Jesus endure the cross? Where did he find the strength to endure the cross? Well, he found it here, in the joy that was set before him. He kept his heart focused on the joy that was set before him, and he endured the horrors of the cross. He endured the horrors of the wrath of God in our place, paying for our sin by his blood, by looking ahead, by, by, by looking to the end of the race, by looking ahead to the finish line and the joy that was set before him. So what is that joy that was so great and awesome that for that joy, he endured the cross. What was it? Well, it's this. Being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Returning to the Father. Being among the countless angels that he created now in festal gathering. And, and being with you, his saints, that he has brought to himself through his cross. For that joy. For that joy that you would enjoy God forever, for that joy, for that future joy, Jesus endured the cross. And he is our example because he ran the ultimate race of love and obedience for the glory of God. And he endured for the joy that was set before him. Therefore, therefore, we need to run in the same way. We need to run in the same way for the joy that is set before us. 
We must run the race of love and obedience for the joy that is set before us. What is the joy set before us? Well, it's namely Jesus Christ. He is the joy that is set before us because he's not just our example, he's also our reward. He is our finish line. He is the prize. He is the great reward. He is the joy set before us. So we run the race of love and obedience by faith, by believing that Jesus Christ is worth it. He is worth it. Amen? He is worth it. Now let's look at a few verses that show us what it will be like to cross the finish line. What it will be like so we can get a sense of the joy that is set before us. Let's have a look at Revelation 21. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, this is the heavenly Jerusalem. Sun has become redundant, don't need it anymore, because Jesus Christ in all his glory is now the sun. He is, he is awesome. He is so breathtaking. And there he is in all his glory with all his saints gathered around him in the resurrection bodies, now not able to just endure his glory, but actually be filled with his glory and, and, and experience a joy and a pleasure that we cannot even fathom because we just don't have a category for it yet. But Psalm 16 verse 11 tells us what it's going to be like. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Here's all we can say. That it's a kind of joy that is full. It's a kind of pleasure that is full. And it goes on forever. Awesome. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So as we get the scale out, and on this side we put the cost of discipleship, on this side we put the glory of Jesus Christ, and we're trying to weigh those out, here's what we do. We throw the scale away because it's a silly comparison. Because if we have any sense at all of the glory of Jesus Christ, our suffering gets smaller and smaller and smaller, now it's dust, now it's gone in light of the glory of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Therefore, Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I pray we're doing that even right now, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Because when we look to Jesus and we look to the cost of our salvation, the Son of God bearing the wrath of God on a cross, and when we look to Jesus and consider the joy that awaits us in his presence and his glory, the spirit of God produces in us love for God and love for others. And we do this. We run. We run. We evangelize. We serve the church. We speak the truth in love. We go to the poor and the afflicted. We run. We suffer, yet we persevere. We run. We run the race of love and obedience by faith, by looking to Jesus which brings us to this final question, and we'll close here. Will I look to Jesus? Will I, will I look? Because this is where heart change and transformation and power to run the race comes from. 
Will I, will I open up my Bible? Will I meditate on who he is and what he has done and what he has promised? Will we so fill our minds with the hope of glory that the Spirit would produce in us a love for God that pushes out competing loves? Will you, will we look to Jesus? Will we think about him? Will we plead with him in prayer to so show us who he is and what he has done and what he has promised that he would so fill us with the knowledge of him that we would passionately run the race of love and obedience by faith for his glory because this is what a disciple does. A disciple runs because a disciple looks. And if we run, there will be a great cost. It may cost you all that you have. But in the end, the gain, the gain will be so worth it. So let us repent of disordered love and believe the gospel. Let us look to the joy set before us in Jesus Christ and let us run the race of love by faith, by looking to Jesus. And let's do it all. Let's do it all, not for ourselves, but for his glory. Amen.